Welcome to this episode of Let's Chat. I'm your host, Chris Revel, coming at you from the Cat Cave in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, really great episode today. We've got returning guest, Joe Capozzi. Capozzi. I'm not sure how you say his last name, but he's a wonderful human being. And I honestly, truly, truly mean this. It was an honor and a privilege to have him on the show once. And now the fact that he came back twice... Man, it's cool. So the first time Joe was on, you can go back and listen to that episode. Uh, it was a couple years ago. He talked about the short film Confession, which was based off of the play he wrote called A Pete's Sake. And it's his personal, it's, his, it's a real story. It's his story of uh, coming to terms with being uh, abused, sexually abused by a priest at a Catholic church. And it's great. Uh, so there's... It's a, it's a great film. But now uh, Joe's working on this documentary, A Pelton of One, which you can find online, YouTube. They have a GoFundMe page, which I put in the show notes. Follow it, uh, follow A Pelton of One on Twitter, Facebook. Go watch the YouTube clip. Follow Joe uh, at, on the Twitter and like all of his amazing work that he does. Uh, another cool thing, we talked a lot about Barry Crimmins, the comedian, so that was fucking great to shout that nice man out. He's rest in peace. Uh, and we got to talk about like dad life, which was always really fun. We both, uh, since we had last talk, we both had kids. So, uh, you know, definitely some dad talk in there. It's really special to, uh, you know, and I, I did open up a little bit about, about the PTSD. Um, you know, sometimes it comes up and, uh, whew, let's see. Yeah, I know the episodes have been inconsistent. I'm not sure how consistent I'll be. My, my goal is one a month. I already have December's recorded and then I got, at least two people I'm trying to book at the moment. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and at Let's Chat Podcast. And you could uh, email me at Let's Chat Podcast at gmail.com. Let me know what you're thinking. Let's get to it. It's it's the best, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, it's it's a mixed bag, but I I ultimately am a love it. It's 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 definitely the greatest thing I've ever done. Those first those first like six months for me were just the, the sleep deprivation. <laughs> oh, yeah. Brutal. We had um, and um, you know, yeah, we had like a really rough go at it. Like my wife had a really traumatic birth, so the first like year was kind of or took a while to get like to the swing of it like the baby was always great but everything else was always like oh my god yeah. that sucks <laughs> yeah and how's she doing now oh amazing i god women are so much stronger than us absolutely yeah my, my wife's labor was like 30 hours jesus and i'm sure yeah. like you were probably complaining of how long it takes and she's like i'm gonna fucking kill you I'm like, yeah, oh, my, oh. my back hurts Ew. from sitting it was just you know what it was it was again it was that we went to the hospital like you know, everybody said, oh, wait until the last minute, wait until the last minute. And, you know, it was our first baby. And kind of when she she wanted to go, we went. And it was kind of a bit early. So that's why we were there for so long. But, um, you know, especially the first baby, you don't know what to expect. It's oh, like, yeah. just play it safe. Oh, absolutely. Is that your first? Yeah, yeah. Little girl as and well? I'm, and I'm an old dad. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 50 next year. So I'm an, I'm an old dude. I'm an old father. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome, man! You look. Yeah. I I thought you were my age, but that's oh, that's so wonderful. No. Um, I mean, yeah. it's it. Oh man, it's 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 awesome. It, I mean, it does get hard playing on the floor at our age, uh, as you get older. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the only thing I'll notice. I'm like, oh my god, you're exhausting. How old is your daughter? Uh, my son. Oh, my so, I'm son. sorry. No, that's okay. My son is two two years. Oh. Uh, yeah. Oh, so they're not and, too uh, far apart. Because right. my, my how, old, how old is your daughter? My, 19 months, so, like, same class. Yeah, and it's kind of like the, the communication is starting. Not starting. I mean, I'm talking now with him, and it's like, you know, well, he's really telling me everything, so. We're like, I want that chair. Yeah, yeah. Everything is his. Mine, mine, mine. <laughs> I'm noticing that now, too. And then, like, well, you're cute, so you can have it. I know. And it's just, it's it's over. It's over. Your, your life is no longer yours. 
And I'm like, I don't know about you, but I was so okay. Uh, maybe because uh, I was uh, 32 or 33. Oh, God, I'm so bad with numbers. But I, I was in my, like, young, low 30s when she was born. And uh, so my wife and I, like, we struggled with IVF for about three and a half, four years as well. Oh, okay. So we had, like, a long journey just to get her here. And then oh yeah, when she was actually born, like, um, the, I'll give you the condensed version of it because I've gotten better with it. Uh, so, like, uh, she was born prematurely because my wife had uh, preeclampsia and then a couple days in the hospital and then eventually had to have an emergency C-section. And then my wife, uh, I don't know what the medical term is, but she wouldn't stop bleeding right after. Mm. So she had... The C-section that morning, and then three surgeries that day, right out, like the whole day, which is oh my crazy. gosh. So she actually like came very close. We actually, it was really traumatic. We almost, she almost, she actually almost died. Um, oh gosh. During the whole thing, she didn't, and then, you know, then after all that, the recovery and all that, and then she was in the NICU, and then, um, that's within some months, both she gets put, uh, postpartum depression, and I got diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, and um. Thankfully, we're big therapy people, and medication, and therapy, and life yeah. is finally, I think maybe last, like, nine or ten months, finally, I feel like life finally came around. I was like, okay, this is all right. We're going to make it. Did you have a good support system around you? Yeah, I have, um, I'm really happy. Great family and fr- friends and family were just, like, at the hospital, and just, like, my mother-in-law was driving. They lived in Jersey at the time, and driving up any chance. She literally just, like, I, I'm pretty sure she even was, like, she works has like a work from home kind of job, so she was like yeah. in the car. She'd be here for days at a time, bringing us food. And my parents and everyone was just like as wonderful as you could be, as one could be. But it's so oh. interesting because I, I work in the like, the behavioral health, mental health field, and I work with so many people with all these symptoms. But yeah, it's I, I'm sure you might be able to. I I do I think a lot about the your movie Confession too, because like I would see people and you could always see someone else with symptoms. But mm-hmm. I couldn't recognize it within myself. It had it took an outside person to be like, oh, maybe you should get some help. This isn't normal. Yeah, no, it, it's you know. Well, first, I'm glad you have a great support system. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's you know. So we're very grateful as all hell now for everything. So like, I'm like, yeah, I'm. We wanted this. We struggled. And now we have her. And I'm like, I'd rather uh-huh. spend time with her with Felicity than do anything else for the most part. I mean, that is pretty, it's an incredible journey and, and like the amount of, you know, effort to have this, this child. And, and, and you know, when they get older, they're not going to give a shit. <laughs> Mom, I know that story. Get over right, it. Right, right. I want the then, car tonight and I'm going right. to be like, yeah, this is, that's and the then, normalcy you want. And, and the truth is this, I mean, the story doesn't need to be exaggerated this, to hear how uh, um, dire it seemed to be. Oh yeah, Which I is, know. Yeah. Yeah, it it was uh I don't know if I really understood that until later on. But yeah, it's it's funny cuz um I, after now after having like post traumatic stress disorder and like um this is crazy cuz like maybe like 9 months ago I couldn't even have this conversation without crying or yeah. or the thing where you overshare and give you too many details where you're like, oh, I don't need to know that part." <laughs> But I, I've I, done that, yep. I'm so glad you reached out because I'm seriously. I kept thinking about your movie and that one scene where you wake up out of bed and you kind of like um, in confession and like you grab your head and the way you did the editing. I was like, oh my god, you fucking nailed it! Like that's exactly what the flashbacks were like. Like that, just like the night terrors and waking up and all of a sudden like, I don't know. I feel like I know they're different experiences, but I I related to confession so much more. I think well, you tra- really captured it. Like you captured trauma real good. It's, well, I think that that you know, I've even since since doing that movie, and I think since you know the conversation about sexual abuse and sexual assault and trauma, you know, take anybody going through any kind of traumatic situation, what you went through, what your wife went through, what I went through, you know, th- there's a certain common, you know feeling or a certain common sense that we all can you know i i've met with so many people who have gone through different types of trauma and it it it, you know it sexual abuse physical abuse domestic violence you know um victims of uh, a violent crime it's that feeling of trauma and how that that imprint it leaves on us and we all handle it differently yeah you know or we don't handle it (laughs) yeah the the the, the th- I, I kind of fell into it, but I've been doing EDMR therapy. I'm not sure if, if you. I did that. Save it. Saved me. I swear I to did God. That. Yep. I, when I finally did the first one, we did the relive the trauma day. And like you know, you do the, the buzzers. 
and mm-hmm. my, my therapist, who I fucking love, he's like, when I, I walked in, and I was like, what are you at? I'm like, you know, like a nine. That was my normal, nine, ten. Like, I'm ready to lose it any second. And he's like, we do the whole thing. I was like, what are you at now? I'm like, a two, but I don't believe it. He's like, yep, it works fast. In a couple days, you're not going to believe it. And it was just, it wasn't that it was gone, but I could remember it without reliving it. And it just, maybe that's a little under a year ago, and that was the moment. I'm like, ah. And I, I just saw him, like, uh, last week, and I told him, oh, this is kind of funny, because I, have you ever seen Office Space? Yes. You know the scene where Peter gets hypnotized by the therapist, and then the therapist dies? Yes. I, um, in all honesty, like, from doing, I like, with the EDMR, if people don't know, it kind of like you reset your emotions. As my therapist calls it, it's like you go into a grocery store and the music is really loud, and then EDMR just kind of levels everything down. And so I've been doing it. I think I'm almost done with, almost, we're almost towards the end of ours. And now I'm like, sometimes I'm like, like Peter from Office Space. I'm like, just I'm calm. I'm I'm happy. I'm in, still have anxiety. Still have all the other life stuff, but I have it when it's appropriate. And I'm like, man, if I felt like this my whole life, I would have done so many more things like i'm just like just that fear of nothing is kind of just gone it's it's great it's it's game changer well i think it's one of those things where um i did that with initially when i went to therapy to deal with my uh abuse um it was literally just i would go three times a week and and just for the 45 minutes would cry for 45 you know cry and it was literally just getting this you know this years of suppressed this years of of keeping the secret and um i would say say for the first three months it was literally just i would emotional emotionally vomit when i would have my sessions oh my god yeah and those those couple days after a session is just like i can't it's so weird. I've never met anyone else who's really gone through it, but yeah. Yeah, it's... And, it, and it's just that whole thing of getting it out. It's like that infection that's inside of you. It's like what I tell anybody, especially survivors that I, uh, you know, I either get messages from or when I was doing this, the documentary about just meeting people and the first thing I say is, are you in therapy? And um, mostly it's always an answer of yes or, you know, I've, I was in it for a couple of years and, you know, how important it is yeah just to, just to get it out to you you had mentioned before about oversharing right i was like you know once i came forward with my secret i was telling anybody like this, the guy you know the stranger in line at the atm you know hanging out like at a at a, at a Dwayne reed waiting online to pay for my you know shaving cream and i'm telling like the, the woman you know checking me out and it's like it, it just you're telling and it's like i had a friend finally say to me you know not everybody's ready to hear what you want to tell. And I was kind of like, you know, initially I'm like, well, I've been holding this secret in and, you know, yeah, but it's like, yeah, that's for you. But, you know, not everybody's really ready to hear that, which, and I totally now look back and I understand it. I mean, I incredibly have a different understanding now, even from when we talked a few years ago and just in terms of where people are, and you need to understand that people are not always ready to hear such such tough stuff, you know. And yeah, just because I'm ready to talk about it doesn't mean that, that that person wants to hear it. Hear it, and I have to respect that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. The, the oversharing phase. I think we all go through it. It's kind of yeah. It is funny. It, like it is funny to look. It, it's so funny because there's such a shorthand in the recovery community too. Because like you're saying, like yes, yes, I did that too. It's it's funny how universal it is. Like it's it's really, it's it's really interesting. It's it's some fascinating stuff that like. Well, don't you think? Really... Don't you think though? Communication and even just the way that you and I are talking about it now, like ten years ago, you know, with this two two men to even be talking about going to therapy and and oh dealing God. with our trauma, um, you know how important it is and how the more we talk about it. That's why we talked when you talked about the therapy you're doing, you know, it doesn't have that emotional weight where we can have a conversation about it and I'm not gonna be crying through the whole thing <laughs> and here. you know, like you know, just just uh, like, you know, holding on to my blanket. <laughs> yeah. It, the thing I learned too about like getting help, it's like so I have a very supportive family. I, t- I talk about it openly with my family there. My my wife is the one who kind of put it together. My my whole family is so supportive. I work in the fucking mental health field, for God's sake. 
and I still had a hard time getting help. So that's it made me really respect people who have to do five times the amount of work to get to where you need to get to. Where I had insurance, I had a great job, I had everything you needed lined up. I just needed to make the call. And then right. I mean, I did lose insur- my insurance changed. I lost my therapist and had like a couple months of bouncing around. But then that's where I landed in EDMR, which really changed everything. But yeah, well, no, it's, it's, o- it's funny. It's always the it's always like finding that right therapist because you know not every therapist is is right for you. Yeah. And you know I've had to go through a few where it's like I definitely have put one or two asleep. I know I've 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 put in a couple of uh you know they fell asleep on me. <laughs> and, and uh, but it's that whole thing. It's at finding that right person, which you know. I've known, I've talked, I, I myself would go to somebody once or twice and I'm like, God, oh, they don't get me and just stop going. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of like, you know, you, you turn your back on it for, for quite some time and um, it's just really finding that right person. So, I mean, it's, they're out there and there are people now, you know, a lot better understanding of what's going on with mental health and with being op- open to talking about it and, you know, look at us now. I, I know. I mean, it's because people like you who are able to share their story and the movies. And um, um, I mean, I like that people are being believed more now. Um, it's it's hard, you know, like, it's really hard to understand for people to like, how, they're like, oh, well, it's always the same thing. Well, how did this happen? And then with any of these big ones like um, with the, the Nasserman, was that the Olympic? With Larry Nasser. From yeah, him or the Catholic gymnastics. Church. Yeah. Listen, you talk about any of any of these things now, especially when it comes to sexual abuse, sexual assault, and why people don't come forward and why people wait 30, 40 years to ever say anything. You know, I feel we definitely have we've come a long way since when I first came forward with my abuse in 2015, where people looked at me as the troublemaker, as the, you know, as the as the troubled one, as the weirdo. Um, You know, that's changed a lot. And you know, through even the terms that we know now about grooming, you know, what does grooming mean? Mm-hmm. And, you know, grooming is, you know, for me, it was at eight years old, I met, you know, a priest came into my family's life. And from that time, I met him when I was eight years old, up until when he started to abuse me at 16. I had known him ha- more than half my life. Yeah. And I had at that point looked at him as a family member and he groomed me. He, he knew my weaknesses, he knew my sensitivities, he knew my, you know, emotional, uh, kind of my emotional life, and he used that to, you know, to kind of win favor with me, and he, it worked, and it's what, you know, anybody talks about all of these, the, the gymnast, the, the gymna- um, gymnasts who went through with Larry Nasser, why didn't they say anything? You know, you have the women who were abused by Bill Cosby. Why didn't they say anything for all these years? You have the people who, who were assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. Why didn't they say anything? You know, Jerry Sandusky. You have all of these different situations where, you know, it's not just we know, we all know now. It's not just priests. It's not just the church. It's all of these different institutions where a predator knows that they can go, be it the Boy Scouts, be it a coach, be it, you know, um, a teacher. And they are in a sense in, in a position of power, and they abuse that power. And it's the culture of silence around it, especially some of these more powerful cases, where it's maybe not the family, but like, um, I mean, the Larry. Uh, no, I, I I forgot the name. Larry, um, uh, Penn State. I was really like I, I watched a really good documentary about that, and like he was caught so Happy many times. Ha- Happy Valley. Yes, yes. It's, yeah. oh my God, it was well done. I mean, I I loved it, but my God, it was amazing, like, how many times this man would be caught in the shower with boys, and people are like, oh, you know, whatever. That's well, just him. It's also, it's the, it's the, it's so much bigger. Yeah. It, What's surrounding, you know, Jerry Sandusky is so much bigger, and there's so much at stake for so many people. Oh, you know, I know who wants to be that person that's actually going to you know go forward publicly and say something. And you can see you know. like why people a it's not like it's just easy like you have this trauma happen to you let me go tell a bunch of people because that's not like even if everyone came to you with open arms it's still going to be hard. But like even like 
um, most recently with like the Kavanaugh hearing, like you could see why people don't come forward. Like, you know, it's just she's a, an adult and um, people don't believe her. And not to make it political, but like that's just a very recent thing. Or like you could, or Weinstein, or there's still people who like the, there are still people who don't believe Cosby did anything wrong, even though he's sitting in jail after he was found guilty for doing what he did. Right. And, it, and you know, how many, I mean, for me, when, when, when the Cosby thing started to unravel and, you know, it was five women, it was 10 women, you know, I identified with those women. I understood why they wouldn't say anything. I understood why, you know, some of them would keep company with him again. I mean, I got it. I did the same thing. You know, it was one of those things where it's like you, you don't realize what's been done to you. Until years later, you know, the average age that someone actually comes forward to say that they were assaulted or sexually abused is 51 or 52 years old. So that's because now in these past, say, 10, 15 years, we've gotten so much more information because so many more people have come become public about it that we've gained a better understanding of, you know, with with me, when I came forward, it was like, well, why didn't you say anything? All of these years, even my family initially at first was like, you know, for 20 years, you didn't say anything. They look at you like, you know, I was looked at like I did something wrong. Now, at the at the time, I was kind of like, you know, well, screw everybody else. But looking, you know, now I understand everybody's reaction, because especially people that are in your family or that you're close friends with, you know, you're supposed to they're supposed to know everything about you. Or you're supposed to share everything with them. And, you know, the truth is, is we don't. We don't share everything with our friends and family. But something like that, especially, the last thing we want to do is upset our friends and family. And when you share a secret, being getting abused, getting assaulted, or however that is, you're just afraid to upset everybody. And you're afraid to let people down. Mm. And, you know, it wasn't, I mean, for me, I wasn't able to say anything until... Um, I was watching the man who abused me starting to groom another young boy. And it was right in front of me. And it's like, that's what you, in the scene in, um, in the movie, in Confession, you see kind of my character, it's somewhat of a dream sequence, looking at this young boy, and he's being toweled off by the pool, by the the father Pete, the, the priest character, because... That actually was a scene I saw. Mm, yeah. And it was also, I started to see the same things where he was talking about this young boy the way he talked about me. And it wasn't until I started to have to mirror this, to so watch it and, you know, watch this play out again, that I was kind of like, okay, well, I couldn't say anything for myself, but, you know, I could say something on behalf of this, to save this young boy because it gave me a reason. Uh, yeah. I wasn't good. I, I wasn't worth it. I wasn't good enough, but I could do it for somebody else because I, I could kind of almost like the way I looked at it. Oh, I'm the hero now. I'm coming forward mm. to save the young boy. Yeah. That's how I had to put it in my own head because it was either I was either going to kill myself or I was going to say something. So if I was going to say something, it was going to be because I didn't want this kid to get abused, and that's what happened. And you and you know it's weird in life because you can't you can't measure preventative things. So like. You prevented – you've changed – that kid might not even know who you are to this day, but you've altered his life for the better had you not spoken up, you know? And it's – there's no way to be like, here's what would have happened, but, I mean, you changed you, – you took a really big negative and you're putting some good positive behind it. Can I, um, so how does this – when you and your wife decided to have a child, like, how much does this experience kind of come into play? Like, I'm sure – because, you know, I mean, it messes with every – so my – um friend, co-worker, and upstairs neighbor is a survivor of sexual abuse, and um, so we're, we're good buddies, and we talk about it, and he will tell me, and he said it just took years for him to feel comfortable in his body with, like, sex and stuff, and I, he's, I, th I'm, I think he's okay with me saying this. I think it's one of the many reasons outside of his uh, substance use that he, no, is, he's clean at the moment. Uh, now he's clean, but he never wanted children, and I think that was one of the things that was just like, and, it's, and totally fine. I respect people who don't want to have kids completely. But like, yeah, you made that. No, I, 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 I didn't want to have children. I didn't want to have, I didn't want to bring up kids in the world that I experienced. Um, I didn't necessarily trust myself 
to be to be able to protect somebody if I couldn't protect myself. <clears throat> um, it wasn't until you know um, I was married once before, and that marriage fell apart. You know, in part because of my own emotional upheaval that I was going through internally and not being able to talk about it. And then once I came forward with my secret and told my story and, you know, I had had divorced my wife and I was kind of like wondering, oh, you know, will I ever find love again? Um, but then I wrote I wrote a play. That's how before the film Confession, there was a play called For Pete's Sake. And it was a 75 minute play about my experience of of being groomed and being abused by a Catholic priest. But it was somewhat comedic because I felt like it needed to have some laughs in it to make people to have people sit through a very tough story. I needed to make people laugh because for me, laughter was a key to getting through all of that stuff. Mm. I always needed to find humor in the darkest of places because that's what saved me. So when I did that play, uh, the first public reading of that play in New York City, my uh, my now wife was in the audience. Oh, my God. That's beautiful. And so here I am. It's a great day. We have the, I, we do the reading of this play, and it goes well. And I'm, you know, standing on the stage greeting people afterwards. And then this, this beautiful woman stands in front of me, and, you know, she puts her hand out, and I shake her hand. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, I am, I am in love. And... You know, we, you know, and she just saw this play with me pretty much for 75 minutes telling all of the, you know, darkest, deepest secrets about what I experienced. And we ended up dating and, you know, she's, it kind of like, she gave, she brought hope into my life again. Yeah. And she ended up directing Confession because she's a, she's a director and she's a writer and she's a filmmaker but she ended up like directing the play and then directing the movie and we work together you know to this day and that's how we collaborate on all kinds of stuff but having you know finding her and 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 you know she wanted to have children and I didn't but it was one of those things where I loved her I love her and I she gave me hope she gave me a sense that there's a decent there's decency in this world and uh and then we had a baby two years ago and you know he is his name's gavin and he's a sweet sensitive little boy who at times and i think about how sensitive i already sense he is like i could like and i was a very sensitive kid yeah. and i'm like oh my god how am i gonna handle this to help him yeah. not to not to like not to like harm him in any way but to allow him to be who he is yeah of course and not and not to be like you know just to nurture like I, the beauty that i already see in him yeah what's that say it's like uh, uh roots to grow wings to fly yes yeah it's it's something uh, my brother so, was uh, yeah. telling me yeah oh sorry there's a lag uh, my brother has a four-year-old and he like was telling me that he has all these questions that he like has um, read for like things he, he asked his son like just to, you know to make sure nothing fun bad is happening at daycare and um, I was really proud of him for being like aware like he's not like suspicious of the world but he's aware of what's out there so those are things you ask your kid just that not, they don't even know what you're asking but he's, so I was like wow man that's really cool that you're aware of that and you're really looking out for your kid and it I don't know, it gave me a lot of hope as well. Well, I think we, I mean, we all obviously need to be aware now, and um, these these secrets have to uh, have to be, you know, we have to be done with these secrets, with keeping these secrets. And um, I, you know, I'm not sure where where schools are now in terms of in, in what grades are they introducing anything about, you know, aware, you know, being being aware of these type of situations, being aware of the of the of the sexual predators that are out there, and I mean, I know I have fellow survivors that go and they'll speak in high schools and they'll speak in colleges, mm. but I'm not sure how early they are even introducing that kind of good touch, bad touch. Yeah. Have you seen the movement within, like, especially the Girl Scouts are pushing this, 
with like especially like little little kids like kids our age of that uh, about like we're teaching consent very young like it's like it's the holidays your daughter doesn't owe anyone a hug so I'm like we're very into right. like that if you don't want to touch someone you don't have to touch anyone so like well it's kid, kid, yeah kids to me <clears throat> and this was the one thing like I remember um what's funny was so two weeks ago I finally got to go and give us give a, a, an official statement sworn statement to the Hudson County um, of Hudson County, New Jersey, to the prosecutor's office, because uh, in New Jersey, as they're doing in many states now, they're having they're convening grand juries about what the church has done to cover up sexual abuse within the states. Now, I think there's like 13 or 14 states where they're at, currently having these grand juries. Now, Pennsylvania came forward with a grand jury report in August that blew everything open. Mm. And now, now the feds are involved too, which is great. Great. Because this was something where we know that this has been a cover up. It's there's no denying. It's just how deep this cover up went and how many people knew about it. So two weeks ago, I was finally able to. I've been waiting 13 years to be able to. I wanted to be sworn in. I wanted to be, you know, with you know a threat of perjury. You know, any of those things. I wanted just to have my hand on that Bible, even though there wasn't one. I was just saying, you know, to give my story. And so finally, it was, I finished working on the filming of the main part of this documentary on a Sunday. And then Monday morning, the first call I received from getting home from, from shooting the film was from, the, from this detective. And he just had left a message, and I called him back, and he's like, you know, you had called in, which I did. I had called in to the clergy abuse hotline in New Jersey, which a lot of states have now. If you've been abused, if you've been assaulted, or if in any way feel like something bad has happened to you by a member of the clergy, you call in the hotline and you give a simple statement about your experience and someone will get in touch with you. Well, for me, I called a few weeks ago or five weeks ago. And then two weeks ago, I got a call and I was able to give for two hours my testimony and my statement. Just me and a detective, literally in this old, like right out of like a 1980s, like um, SVU episode. And it was me and him and a camera. And for two hours, he listened to my story. And I felt like for the first time, it was, you know... He, he listened, he asked great questions, and I felt like, you know, a, a piece of me felt finally like I was listened to and, and I was taken seriously. How did that feel, man, after to really do that after all these years? Felt yeah. great. I was, I was, I wanted, I wanted that day, and I, I, that's like I've told a lot of other people who either are unsure of calling or like, you know, Either you know there got you know people who have settled their cases and I, I I sued the church and I settled the case but they still want to hear from everybody and it's just the it's what it's what I wanted it's just I wanted that time to be able to under oath to be able to say this is what happened to me and it felt great it felt great and it felt like this is this is we're gonna get to the truth of everything and there will be people punished and they're people need to be punished for what they did for what they covered up and what they hid because it's all going to come out and it's all yeah, coming out now. Now was it also, so that's so interesting. I think because like we talked earlier with therapy. So here you are sitting down with a man and in a non-clinical setting and you were able to do that. I mean, hats off to you, man. That is, that's such a testament to the, your, the amount of steps you've taken in your, your recovery. The, um, the detective was somewhat nervous, I could tell, but he was great. I mean, he definitely asked the right questions and he asked them in the right way. Uh, I think for me, having gone to therapy and having been, you know, vocal about my experience for the past 13 years, you know, it didn't make it like, you know, it wasn't like, oh, it was a great two hours of conversation. It was tough, but it was also, I was able to put it together in a way where at the end of it, when I walked out of there, I felt good. I wasn't like emotionally spent and, um, you know, 
he even said to me, he goes, are you, you know, you, you're going to be okay to drive home. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be fine. Um, I'm going to be actually, I feel a lot better than when I first walked in. So it was good. I mean, it was important to be able to get the story out, to have it on record, to make it part of a, you know, it's part of a criminal proceeding because what happened to me was a crime and I'm a victim of a crime. And it's just one of those things where, you know, I've talked to, I guess I wanted like to talk, we'll talk about this documentary that I'm working on called A Peloton of One because the survivor is, um, he's another, he's a fellow abuse survivor from New Jersey, Dave Allmuller. <clears throat> and about a year and a half ago, I saw some posts on Facebook that he had put up about, had anybody, has anybody had any experience dealing with the church in New Jersey? And, you know, on Facebook and on social media, there's a great survivor community that helps each other out. And I reached out to him and I'm, I'm like, yeah, if you want to talk, give me a call. And I've done that before and people have done it for me. So it's one of those things where we just help each other out. And so we talked and I told him my experience. But then he said, you know, he's like, well, I want to I want to uh, I want to ride my bike from Chicago to New Jersey. I'm like, OK, uh, he lives in Chicago, but he was born and raised in Montclair, New Jersey. And that's where his abuse took place. And he's like, I want to. Uh, I want a bike to raise awareness about childhood sexual abuse. I'm like, okay. And he's like, well, I know you've done a play about it and you did a movie and I know you, you know, you, you make films and such. And I'm like, yep. And he's like, well, I want you to make a documentary about it. <laughs> and I was like, well, I said, okay. I said, but it's gotta be more than just about you biking because you know, that'll be interesting for like 10 or 15 minutes. But if it's also about you, going on some kind of an emotional journey that we could capture. And he then connected me with a, a high school classmate of his, John Bernardo, my uh, co-producer on it. And he's a filmmaker as well. And him and I met and we started to come up with the idea of if you want to do this, if he wants to do this bike ride, we need to meet people along the way. And we met survivors, we met advocates, we met, um, the politicians that are, you know, in their in the in the locals in the states that are trying to get the statute of limitation reform um, passed. So we started in Chicago, and he uh, we biked Chicago to we went to uh, Indiana. We were in Indiana. We were in Ohio. We were in Pennsylvania. We came down to New Jersey, and then we did a quick stop in New York. But along the way, we met with such an amazing group of people. I mean, just like we met, I mean, we met a 15-year-old sexual assault survivor, 15, who is now a his name's Tommy Williams, and he lives in Altoona, Pennsylvania. And this kid is he was he was assaulted when I think he was around eight or nine, maybe ten, but he came forward which is rare being so young, but he's now turned it in him and his mother, who's, she's a great, she's a great, great person. Kelly, they've turned it into, I mean, this kid goes around and he speaks at all of these different events, but the way he carries himself, um, Dave got to meet him mm. and Dave being a 48 year old man, I felt, we felt that he could learn a lot from this 15 year old kid. And, and they had a great meeting and we, you know, we got to just, just to have some great experiences with people. But Tommy was someone who really stood out to us because he's so young and it's not, you don't see that. You don't see a 15 year old kid talking about the experience, such a horrific experience. So, you know, we, uh, I, I think this film, what we've done is something special in the sense that it's, it's going to be. While it's a sad story, as they all are, it's a very inspiring and hopeful and healing journey that we kind of see Dave go through. I, I really like that within your work that you do understand how it's hard for people to hear, but then you always end it on the tune of, like, there is hope. And, and, and you and all these people are leading the charge for that hope. And it's also great to see, like, politicians in this as well, too, like people who might not have a personal experience, but they still give a shit. Like, maybe they weren't. Like, well, we met. We met in New Jersey, the state that I'm from, there's a state senator. His name is Joe Vitale. 
And for as long as from when I came forward, he has been one of the few politicians who has been so vocal about supporting survivors, but also understanding how the statute of limitations need to be changed on sexual assault and sexual abuse crimes. Because the way it is now in most states, an SOL is an expiration date. So if a, if a you know a crime happens, there's an you know there is a eventually you have an expiration date: two years, three years, five years. And for different types of crimes, it's different. Other than murder or rape, but the idea of sexual assault and sexual abuse, and understanding now that people do not come forward in two or three years, it takes them 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Well, this is all new information for us. But the way the statute of limitations are is they 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 tie the hands of the of this of the victim. They, they it's five years, it's ten years, and that's not enough time. So these the way the laws are now, the laws protect the predators and the laws protect protect the institutions that house the predators and that protect the predators. So what's going on now, the movement that's going on in Pennsylvania, where in Pennsylvania, if you want to look into an amazing state where the survivors, the sexual abuse and assault survivors in Pennsylvania have joined together and have become such an incredible force of change. I mean, they are changing for the whole country and for the world, everybody's paying attention to what's going on in Pennsylvania. Um, in New Jersey, Senator Joe Vitale has been an incredible um, supporter and being a, he's a state politician. He has the power to change the statute of limitations. But there continue to be the insurance companies, the Catholic Church. Boy Scouts of America, um, other public, uh, private schools that fight, that lobby, that pay lobbyists lots of money to fight any kind of statute of limitation. On, on sexual assault or for everything? Uh, on sexual assault what and sexual abuse. What if to wake up in the morning and be like, ah, can't go into the office and make sure I sign well, that's pretty much how it's been. And, you know, you now in Pennsylvania, there's one or there's a, a couple of of the state senators that are in control that are preventing it. In New Jersey, the same thing. In New York, the same thing. New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania are three states with some of the worst SOLs, but that have laws and bills pending to to fix this. But what it always comes down to, it always comes down to is, you know, the majority of the people in the state feel that the SOLs should should be done with, should be take, should just be should be just, you know, written out. There should be no statute of limitations on sexual assault and sexual abuse. There shouldn't there shouldn't be a time limit on when somebody could come forward to you know talk about and to say this happened to me by this person and I want them charged and I want them brought up legally on charges. There should be no time limit on that. And now that people are understanding it better through because be it a film like Spotlight, which you know for for many people it kind of like was oh what a horrible thing happened. Those reporters were great, but obviously with Spotlight, it was more about, you know, the, it was about the investigation, but Spotlight helped to kind of put it in in the spotlight, put this issue. But I think um, I think what's happening now is we, we are close, very close, especially within those three states. And hopefully the federal government will, st will step in and do the right thing and have, uh, you know, the federal government will look into the cover up that the Roman Catholic Church has done within the United States and bring those who who were who were complicit in this, who helped to cover it up, bring them to justice. It's kind of off topic, but I've, have you been following because like um, who was the old pope who retired? I forget his name. Oh, it, uh, he's still Benedict. alive, which is unprecedented in, in Catholic Church history. But the belief is if he were to leave the Vatican, he would be extradited because the belief is that he was like it goes to the top. Like supposedly he has all the information within the Vatican. It's it's a very powerful, small group of men who who have a lot of control. Even Pope Francis, even though Pope Francis said a lot. 
he said a lot of the of the of the words that we wanted to hear. He he spoke the words child sexual abuse, but they have not acted. They haven't acted on he he hasn't acted on the promises that he made. It's they're still so afraid to really be transparent about this. And you know, with Pope Benedict, I think even his brother there were some issues with his brother as well. But it'll all come out. It's just about the amount of pressure that we could put on them because they also have a lot of money. You know, they have a lot of money. Well, what could I do? What could we do? But this is, you know, this okay. is, we, well, it's like, you know, social media is a great thing. I mean, social media is while there's the, there's the good and bad of social media, but what social media has done for the survivor community, it's brought everybody together and it's allowed people to have this mm. conversation. And, you know, people need to, people need what I say is people need to know, especially if, if you live in the United States, know, you, know what your state's statute of limitations are on sexual assault and sexual abuse. Google it. There are enough, there are plenty of good websites out there. Um, Marcy Hamilton, who's who's in our documentary as well. She's one of the leading experts on statute of limitation reform. You could look her up, her um she has a great page out there which gives an explanation of all the different statute of limitations because it's a state-by-state state issue. Wow. Every state has their own statute of limitations. So this isn't a federal issue. Hmm. Where Federally, what, they, what, what the government can do is if they wanted to do, you know, they can investigate and they can bring federal charges against the church for cover-up, but it takes the states to change the laws that currently protect the predators and the institutions that protect them. Uh, when when's the documentary coming out? Like, what can you tell us about the when the rollout? Well, the documentary we finished for the most part. We have a couple of interviews left to get, um, and like everything else, it's about funding. I mean, we've raised seventy thousand dollars so far, and we need to raise another thirty thousand to finish post production. Um, and, you know, we have a GoFundMe page that we've been, you know, trumpeting like crazy. And, what's um, the, what's the site? We've been I'll, doing I'll, it. We'll attach it in the link as well. Um, yeah, but, but it's, uh, it's uh, a Peloton of one is the name of the documentary. And Dave Olmuller, who is the subject in the documentary, he's been really the, the one who's the GoFundMe page is, is funding mm -hmm. through him. Smart. Uh, yeah, but. He, uh, I mean, he's a guy who I think for him to do this documentary and for him to share his story, he's still really in it. You know, when we talked earlier about like yeah. therapy and, um, having, you know, when you discuss your story emotionally, I, like for me, I would just cry, cry, cry those first, you know, that first year coming to terms with everything, you know, Dave in many ways, you know, that's why, um, I, I care for him so much because I know exactly what he's going through. And um, for this documentary that he was able to meet people that, like I said, meet this 15 year old Tommy Williams to meet some of the great advocates out there to be stand on the steps in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania on, on the, on the Capitol steps to um, kind of to protest, to bring back the uh, state senators to vote on the SOL reform with all the other Pennsylvania survivors. Um, I kind of saw Dave become more comfortable talking about his story and, and um, feeling more empowered and less shame because so much shame is attached to what we experience. And uh, my hope for him is that he will, you know, he's not part of what you'll see in the documentary is kind of the issue about therapy and he's not currently in therapy and it's something that I've, you know, really want him to do and many of the people that we met along this ride they would be the first thing that they would say to him too so you know i hope through dave and and, and maybe when other people get to see it they'll understand that you know that therapy is not a bad thing yeah. therapy is a great therapy is a great thing it's an important thing and it's just that starting it's that first session <laughs> it's going there that first session and, you know, I know for me, after a session, I feel I feel good about myself. I'm like, okay, I did something to take care of myself today. Yeah, well, that per yeah, uh, well I, I, I applaud all 
of the work that you and all these wonderful people are doing. And it's, it's so interesting that such a traumatic thing happened to you. And um, we can't change the past, but it seems that you are on a really good path because of a really horrible thing, which is a weird way to look. Obviously, I'm, we all wish this stuff doesn't happen, but it's what you do with what happens to you. And it's just, I'm just so happy that you are one to, to wave in the flag to help others. And, and now you get to raise the next generation to be a better human. It's, it's important. Well, that's the point, I think, for me. It's like I always said I wanted to make something good out of the shit <laughs> yeah, that happened I mean, to me. I mean, it's, you know, and I, I, you know, and I, want, I, I wanted to actually to, to mention, and we had talked about him the last time that we talked, um, and he has since oh, Barry, passed away, I was Barry Crimmins. just thinking about him. He, uh, so he passed away in May of this year and um before doing confession i didn't know who barry crimmins was so i didn't know who barry crimmins was in 2015 2014 2015 a friend of mine said go go look at this film you should watch this call film. me lucky this doc yeah. this documentary oh, call me lucky and and i watched call me lucky and after crying but also being inspired, I was like, "Who the fuck is this Barry Crimmins? And why doesn't any why do, why don't more people know about him?" And so, when we were doing the screening of Confession, we reached out to Barry and asked him, "Can you can you come and you know you know it, it's a 15 minute short film. We're doing this. We're having all these people come. We need to we need filler. We need somebody to like you know talk other than me." And I kind of saw his comment and I was like, this would be interesting because it's kind of an in, in your face stuff. And I like to kind of, you know, shock people maybe a little bit. And uh, Barry came. He, all we had to do was put him up in a hotel and we put him up in a hotel. And I got to meet him for a bit before. And he took me aside and we had a great conversation. And I was like, man, I really like this guy. And he went and he did 15 minutes before the screening of the film. And he was phenomenal and then we kind of started up a, a friendship and we would talk every once in a while and i uh i was so uh i really loved this guy like i really just felt a, a real connection with him and he would call me on he was because his career started picking up call me lucky came out then you know he had he, some you know he had gotten a a, a stand-up special produced and Things were really. He was starting to get the, his yeah. due. He had helped. He had helped so many people in the comedy world, and you know, and they've helped him. But he was starting to be known, and he was going. He was growing around the world, and he was doing such great stuff. And then I get a call in March. He calls me one night, and I could barely understand him. And he's like, "I have something to tell you." I'm like, "What?" He's like, "I have cancer," and I was like, "Oh shit." And I had a tough time understanding what he was saying. And I was like, I wanted to understand every single word he said. And But I didn't want to be like Barry. I can't understand what you're saying. Because I just, you know, I just, I just, I just wanted him. He was just talking. And, you know, that was it. I got off the phone with him. And I was kind of like, well, I, get, I said, we'll talk again. And he's like, well, I don't know. And and then he died in, in May. Yeah, he was um, actually supposed to do this podcast after really? you came on, um, I like, and there's someone else that knew him. Like somehow we started talking on Twitter, and like I, you know, I was like, oh, and so and so is a past guest, and he was waiting for the special to come out, and we were gonna yeah. like, tie it up, and um, and maybe it would never have happened. Who knows? But you know, he since passed. But I talked to him on Twitter, him like a few times. Seemed like a nice guy, and this is such a how ironic is it that the very person that helped him get the fame he needed was Louis C.K. Uh, sexual abuse. I know not no fault to Barry Quirman's that has, I know it's unrelated but just I I guess that goes oh. back to what we're saying is it's just you don't know where it is like it's right in front of you and I think the thing with with Barry because it was like you know Louis Louis uh produced his stand-up special that he shot in Kansas yeah, he was uh he and... was nice to Louis when he was an up-and-coming comic that was the thing because he, he has that joke that yes. thank god I was nice to that kid so he he was Louis yeah. C.K.'s mentor. He helped because he, uh, Barry was big up and he he managed the comedy clubs up in Boston and he was a big influence up there and he really looked out for people and so 
yeah, Louis kind of like once things started really picking up for Barry again, Louis like, here, I'll produce this yeah. special for you. And he, I mean, he, and it was great. I mean, it was so well produced. And he was, you know, for Barry, it was like letting, um, he was letting, you know, he was giving him, I felt, so much that he was due. And then, of course, what happens with Louis happens. And I'm like, Jesus Christmas. I'm like, you know, there's no, like, it's, it's just, and then, he, and then he passed. And I'm like, and he had just gotten married, too. He had called me, like, even, like, maybe, I don't know how many, maybe four or five months before that. And he's like, I'm in love. And I was like, really? And he told me all about this woman named Helen who he ended up marrying. And so he, he kind of at least was able to find that love. And, you know, so in the documentary, though, because it's so maybe from a selfish standpoint, is I just made up two T-shirts with Barry Crimmins' name on it. And I wear it throughout oh, the documentary cool. when, I'm in, when, I'm in, when I'm interviewing some people or just – and I always say to people, do you know who this is? And they're like, no. And I'm like, I kind of have to give my five minute, you know, you know, you know, you need to see this movie and you need to know, you need to know this because he was someone who was talking about this issue when no one was talking went, about it. He went head Nobody. to head with AOL. Yes. In 1995, when no one was talking about, no one was paying attention to this stuff. No one wanted to deal with this stuff. And this guy, what he did was something that I, I still don't think enough people understand and realize. And they will eventually, when, as long as we keep talking about him. You know, what this guy did, what Barry did was just an amazing thing. He has such beauty. He has such a beautiful heart. And it's like whenever I do anything that's related to this topic or not, if, I, if his name comes up, if I could bring his name up somehow to somebody, I want them to know who Barry Crimmins is. I mean, have you reached out to Bobcat Goldwaith at all? I know it's not no, that easy no, to I do, mean, but... I, yeah, no, I I'm mean, sure I, I, I think it's one of those... Yeah, you know, I, sent his, I actually sent his wife a, a picture of me wearing the shirt, and she sent back a really nice yeah. note. You know, it's just one of those things where it's like, one day, I'm just sure... Just for fundraising you know, alone, one day, like, like, oh... Him and then um you know yeah. the other guy too is um SpongeBob, if um because they all grew up together Tom Kenny, oh Tom right, Cat Bob right. Cat and I forget what Barry was but they they all grew up together just for just for fundraising alone but I'm sure I don't know Bob yeah, Cat. Yeah no, I know and it's, I always feel and it's always it's like I always feel, you know Barry was very similar like, like me, in terms of the whole survivor advocacy movement, he didn't like mm. groups. I don't like groups. He always groups were always asking him, you know, be on our board, be on our board, you know, you know, you know, speak for us here. They always wanted something from him, and he always was like, no, I don't want to be part of a group. He's like, I will share my story, I will talk to anybody, I will be there to listen for anybody. But once you start putting me in a group or as part of a group, it limits me, and that's how I feel. And my, that's been my experience in terms of there's a lot of great advocates out there. But then there becomes a whole territory issue, and it becomes a whole who's more important issue. And then it becomes, well, who was more impactful or who made the changes more? And it becomes this whole almost kind of this this game. And, you know, that's that, that's why I think I, I, I like Barry so much because I really, you know, I, I identify with him. And I was like, that I want to be like him when it comes to this stuff, talking yeah, about yeah. these issues and, and being the app that I am. Well, I hope you meet Bobcat one day just to tell, just even just to tell him that oh. like, you're like a pro, like, you know, like Barry touched your life and then you're, you're carrying the torch, you know, you're like the confessions is going to be someone's call me lucky. Yeah. I mean, we, have, you know, it's, it's, I have heard from people around the world about confession and it's a 15 minute film that is a tough film to watch and most people turn it off at the same – it's about the eight-minute mark. I've got it down to, like, I can see online when people turn it off because that's the uncomfortable part. And I get it. But those people who watch it through – and I've heard from people from France, from England, from Italy, from Australia, from New Zealand, from Spain. And because we put it out there for anybody to see. Just, you know, just watch it. And when I hear from that one person – and they get it, and they get it, and it makes me like, 
and I tell my wife about it because it's why we wanted to do it. We wanted to make a movie where people understood what it's like to, to kind of live in that mind of being a survivor, being a victim of sexual abuse or, or any kind of trauma, you know, any kind of trauma where it's like you have this shitty secret that's inside of you that's evil. And, you know, hopefully let that secret go and start living your life and not be, and not, you know, the shame is not yours anymore. The guilt is not yours. You got to let it go and you know start to live healthy and start to heal absolutely uh, man honestly you are an inspiration and I'm, I'm honored that you've come on the show now twice to talk such about important things um is there anything we missed and if not like what's uh tell us tell us where people can find you in the documentary in any way we can support it well go on you know we're on facebook we're on instagram um a peloton of one um and I'm sure, you know, you could sh share the link with everybody. Um, and we, we're on GoFundMe as well. But we uh, hope to have the film finished by the spring of 2019. And we have a couple little fundraising events, just little, uh, some small little fundraising events that we hope to be happening within December and January. Because this is, this is the little film that I feel and that, you know, I, I have to say this. This crew of people that worked on this film, there was, there was, including Dave, the subject, there was seven of us in total, and we kind of called each other the Magnificent Seven. But these were six guys, five guys actually, the crew, who we, this film could not have been made without this group of people. They all had the right temperament because filmmaking is not easy. Documentary filmmaking is incredibly hard. But these guys, we for two weeks we were on the road, living in like a van, you know, sharing, you know, little, you know, sharing a hotel room here and there, and we, we really, I think we really made something special, and I can't wait for people to see it in 2019. I can't wait to see it. And obviously, you and everyone, you're always was before it comes out, come back on the show to help spread the word. Absolutely, Chris. Thank you.